our brother in the faith, Richard Sibbs, once said this about nearness to God. God alone can fill every corner of the soul of man. God is a fountain that will never run dry. If it is good to be near God, then the nearer we are to Him makes it even better. Man must not neglect God for any reason, and it is good to lose all for God. Why? Because we have riches in Him, liberty in Him, and all in Him. A man may be a king on earth and yet a prisoner in himself. If we lose anything, even our own life for God, we shall save it. Labor to be near Him. God is near to all that call upon Him. There is not a minute of time in all of our life, but we must either be near to God or we will be undone. Do you resonate with Richard Sibbs? Where are you this morning in your nearness to God? Do you read quotes like this and think to yourself, wow, I really, really want that. But I don't know how to get there. There might be some of you here that that think that this is impossible to have such nearness and delight in God on this side of glory. Well, this morning I would like to both encourage you and challenge you. If God is the same today and yesterday and forevermore, then that means the God we will worship in glory is the same God we are worshiping today. Do you desire this morning to be actually satisfied in God? Are you undone by your sin, overwhelmed by all the trials and temptations of your flesh, Satan, and the world? Do you want, friends, do you want a glimpse of him? Friends, just a glimpse of God, just a glimpse of him, will satisfy all the longings of our hungry souls. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 36 is where we will be this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, that is on page 265. 265. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you are welcome to take that Bible with you. Psalm 36. Let's read this together. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has act, or he has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. 
the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is God's word. There at the beginning of the psalm, you can see that it was written by David. As you know, David was the king, the king of Israel, God's anointed man to sit upon his throne. The term David used for himself, the servant of the Lord, is only used here in this psalm and in Psalm 18. It's the only two places in the entire Psalter that it's used. Also in the heading, this psalm was written to be sung to the choir master, to be sung by the people of the Lord, the Israelites, when they worship the Lord together. So we're not exactly sure the literal occasion for when it was written. But Psalm 36 in many ways resembles Psalm 14 in its description of, of human depravity, of our wickedness. And it also brings to mind David's personal confession found in Psalm 32. Psalm 36 contrasts the corrupt life of the wicked and a marvelous vision of God. This is a psalm of powerful contrasts, a glimpse of human wickedness at its most, its most malicious extent, and divine goodness at its most magnificent fullness. Few psalms in the entire Psalter cover so wide a range in such a short space. There's hardly any that do it. Though its themes of human wickedness, the fear of God, and the steadfast love of the Lord are littered everywhere through the Scriptures and through the Psalms, there are hardly any that deal with such a chasm, a chasm of contrasts in the way that this Psalm does. So in verses 1 through 4, the text plunges into the depths of sin and explains in vivid language the evil, the corruption, and the depravity, the pollution of the wicked. But then in verses 5 through 12, the text soars. It soars describing God's goodness and His satisfying nature. This text is about that word. It's about satisfaction and where it can be found. Verses 1 through 4 are about the way that the wicked seek fullness or satisfaction in sin. Verses 5 through 12 are about how utter delight and satisfaction can, ever, can only ever be found in God alone. So friends, what streams are you drinking from this morning? Where are you seeking your satisfaction? What stream is your heart drinking from? Friends, left to ourselves, we will all seek to be satisfied by the sinful pleasures of our flesh and the world. But when we observe God's goodness and meditate on His love, then we will see that true, lasting fullness comes from God alone. I pray we all come away from this text knowing that it, Psalm 36, is medicine for our thirsty souls. 
My basic outline this morning is laid out in two major points. I'll have several subpoints over uh, under each. Point number one is the emptiness of sin. The emptiness of sin. That's found in verses one through four. Point number two, the fullness of God. The fullness of God. That's verses five through twelve. So friends, let's look at verse 1 through 4 together. Reading them again, they read this way. Transgression speaks to the wicked, deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He's ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Verse 1 starts with this interesting phrase. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. The word for speak in verse 1 in the Hebrew is used many places throughout the Old Testament. It's usually used to describe when a prophet of the Lord is about to speak an oracle of God to the people of God, or to lay out judgment for the people of God. It's the same word. But here in this passage, it is used to display the declaration about transgression instead of a declaration from God. David's basic thought, the way that he's communicating this is this. He says, this is how transgression works in our hearts. This is the progress and process of transgression. This is how transgression grows and plays out in the hearts of the wicked. You can even see that progression in the self-flattery of the wicked at the beginning of verse 2. And the total craving for evil at the end of verse 4. So the spectrum in these verses describes a plunge, plunge into the wallowing in and the entire saturation of wickedness in the heart. But in whose heart? Well, the text says the heart of the wicked. Well, who is the wicked? We see a contrast between the righteous and the wicked throughout the Psalms. And the most fundamental of these is Psalm 1. When you see the way that the righteous and the wicked are set against one another. Psalm 1, 1 through 3, really expresses the patterns in life of a righteous person. Saying that those who are actually blessed by the Lord are those who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on His law day and night. It even shows through the imagery of a tree planted by streams of water the fruitfulness of a righteous person before God. But then there's a shift in Psalm 1 verse 4 that describes the wicked like chaff that the wind drives away and goes on to say that the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. This idea of being for God and against God is all through the Scripture. And we see the beginning of this in Genesis 3 where there's two different seeds, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. And we see in an instance, we see this play out when Cain rises up to murder his brother in Genesis 4. Then the seed of the serpent, or those who don't believe in God, flows Throughout the span of Scripture, you can trace it through Scripture. So the wicked here, as generally in the Psalms, does not describe a faithful people who have moral flaws. It describes those who are given over to doing evil, even if they are nominally nominally within the covenant people, as these verses make clear. And the Psalms paint this picture that all humanity, all humanity, fall into one of two categories. 
We are either the righteous or the wicked. There's no middle ground. The psalm says that you are one or the other. But then in Romans, Paul walks us through the wickedness of man in chapter 1 and the judgment of God and on that unrighteousness in chapter 2 and also through the beginning of chapter 3. But when we come to Romans 3 that Jason read just a few moments ago, we discover that it isn't simply those who don't follow God's law or who don't make sacrifices like a good Jew that are considered unrighteous or wicked, but that none is righteous. None. No, not one, is what Paul says. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Paul even solidifies his argument by quoting Psalm 36.1. He quotes Psalm 36.1 in Romans 3. And this is in our text this morning. And he gives the one defining, summarizing characteristic of all wickedness. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God. Friends, all of us fall on one side of the line. We are all wicked. All of our hearts. We all desire it left to ourselves. None of us will desire to pursue God in and of ourselves. Apart from God's common grace and saving grace, all of us would be as bad as we could be and none of us would desire Him at all. Sin isn't a mistake we make. It's rebellion. Rebellion against the Holy God. 1 John 3 verse 4 tells us, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. In Psalm 36, 1, David is saying that the wicked person is characterized above all else by the fact that he does not take God into account. Like a fool, in Psalm 14, the wicked person lives as if God were not existent refusing to believe that he or she will need to give an account to God and be judged by him one day. We all need to ask ourselves this question, friends. In what way am I living for myself? In what ways am I living for me, for my glory, for my satisfaction? And seeking to find that in any, anything other than God. Anytime we have self-centeredness, we lack God-centeredness. Anytime we sin, we are not fearing God. That's the fundamental problem. We sin because we don't fear Him. We are not in dread of His judgment to not believe what God says is to not fear Him. Friends, in what ways? We need to all ask ourselves, in what ways am I not believing what God says? The fear of God that springs from faith is a special response to revelation. God revealing Himself through the Scriptures. The reverential awe that recognizes total dependence upon the Lord. In the absence of reverence, a different type of fear will be experienced. Namely, what we mentioned earlier, dread for sin. Beloved, we always 
need to grow in our reverence for God. But if we have never experienced a holy dread because of our sins, then we may not know how sinful we are. And we may not know how holy God is. David is beginning to show the extensive, expansive nature of sin and corruption by showing different elements of man's transgression and how sin touches all of them. The heart or the will, the eyes, the mouth, the mind, and the actions. All of them are in verses 1 through 4. Sin affects every part of us. So starting in verse 2, David then walks us through two ways that this wickedness plays out in our hearts. Number one, the presence of self-flattery. He says, for he flatters himself. He flatters himself in his own eyes. Without fearing God, we can easily, easily make ourselves the center of our world. Flattery is simply exaggerated praise. Blake shared that last week in his sermon. It's convincing ourselves that we are one thing when we're not. It's a lie about ourselves that we tell ourselves. So think with me for a moment. How does self-flattery manifest in your hearts? Jonathan Edwards says this, the wicked man flatters himself until he finds by experience that it is a more dreadful thing to sin against God and break his holy commands than he imagined. Jonathan Edwards also gives us seven aspects of what self-flattery looks like in our hearts. I'm going to walk through these quickly. Number one, he says some flatter themselves with a secret hope that there is no such thing as another world. And by this, he means that they flatter themselves in thinking that there is not an afterlife at all. That there is no one to answer to. That they will simply exist now and not exist then. The second way, he says, is some flatter themselves that death is a great way off. They are the I've got time people. If I'm not going to die soon, then why would I think about and plan for it? Number three, he says, some flatter themselves that they, they lead moral, orderly lives and therefore think that they should not go to hell or that they're good enough to make it. Number four, he says, some flatter themselves with their own intentions, thinking that even if they do bad things, their intentions are right. The fifth way, he says that there are some who flatter themselves that they do and have done a great deal for their salvation. They think that they have actually done good enough to save themselves. Number six, some hope by their strivings to obtain salvation. And then number seven, some sinners flatter themselves that they are already converted when they're not. Friends, sinful self Flattery is a perceived righteousness, but not a real righteousness. It's a perceived righteousness, but not a real righteousness. Friends, in what ways, right now, think about it to yourself, in what ways do we tell ourselves that we are righteous? when God says we're not? In what ways are we speaking peace to our hearts when God doesn't? The next way wickedness plays out in our heart is the fear of exposure. The fear of exposure. 
The text says, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Friends, this this self-flattery grows to where we either cannot see or our sin, or if we do, we hide so it cannot be found out and hated. In our sin, we do not fear God. So we do not hate the evil in our hearts. We don't want the evil in our hearts exposed. We don't want to confess sin. We don't want to experience forgiveness because we don't want to experience the first two. We don't want to be exposed. Being convinced because of self-flattery that we are okay. I'm okay. No, I'm fine. We'll begin to hide and ignore the parts of ourselves that are not okay. As long as everyone thinks we're doing good, then we're doing good. We might say there's no need for self-examination. I'm fine. There's no need to open up. Because I'm really doing fine on my own. There's no need for church membership. There's no need to put myself around other Christians for accountability. Yes, God commands us to forsake the gathering, or not to not forsake the gathering. There we go. Hebrews 10.25 tells us that. But that alone, that alone is enough for us to be at church every Sunday. But why did God command that? Why did God command that we don't forsake it? Because we easily deceive ourselves. I must obey the king who commands me to gather with his people. But beloved, I need you in my life. I need you in my life. I need Mark asking me, how's my marriage? I need Jackson asking me, hey, what's going on? What's going on in your heart? Friends, I need that. I need people asking me, how's your devotional life? And I need men and women who love God watching my life because I really want to make it to heaven and see the Lord. CCBC, I need you to help me make it to heaven. We need each other. And friends, if you're sitting here and you think, you think, I'm doing fine. I don't need that. Then friends, we are always in fear of something. Are you enslaved to fear? What do you fear? What you put before your eyes most often is something that you probably fear. Is it the opinion of people? Is it the look from that one person you really respect and you really want their attention? Whose opinion counts to you? From where do you desire approval but fear rejection? Where does your mind drift when you're not being vigilant, guarding your heart? When you're doing menial tasks throughout the day, what are your, what are your thought ruts? What does your mind slip into? And you're just doing normal things. It's probably in those ruts that you will discover your idol. Those who fear God have their hearts searched by His holiness, which exposes their sin. Because they fear God, they know they can't escape His justice. So they hate the sin. They hate the sin. 
that robs them of all that matters most. They confess it and experience God's forgiveness. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Derek Webb, when talking about his sin that led to his divorce, said the following statement. Trust takes years to build and seconds to break. I simply cannot change what I've done, nor the consequences. I can only own these despicable actions which have made, have left me completely devastated and deeply ashamed. Sometimes, no matter how bad you want it or how hard you fight it, broken things just can't be mended. You might be seriously considering choices that could destroy your life, your family, and maybe yourself. If that's you, please listen to me. What you think you want, what you think you can have, is not real. And you'll lose real things pursuing it. Sinful self-flattery. When it leads to fear of exposure, will tell you lies about yourself. And it will tell you lies about others that are not true. And it will destroy you in the end. Well, verses 1 through 2 show the inner working of transgression in the heart. Friends, verses 3 through 4 show five ways how it's expressed in the life, in the day-to-day life. He says, first of all, that there's a presence of an evil tongue. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. The sin of our hearts will come out through the actions and through our mouths. Matthew 12 verse 34 says, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The second thing he points out is the absence of any good works or any wisdom. The text says he has ceased to act wisely and do good. Proverbs 1, seven says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. When you have no fear of the Lord, godly, knowledge and wisdom are not present. The third thing he points out is the presence of a corrupt mind. It says he plots trouble while on his bed. Psalm 63, verses 5-6 through six say, My soul is will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Friends, instead of meditating on God's goodness and His love, malicious plans are made in bed so that they can be carried out in daytime. It's a purposeful evil. The fourth thing he points out is the pursuit of corruption. It says that he sets himself in a way that's not good. And the fifth thing he says is that they attain it. Corruption. It says he does not reject evil. His sins of influence and action are the outflow of his whole being, which is corrupt in thought, will, and feeling. This is the defining element of wickedness, friends. You do not fear God, and you do not reject evil. We don't fear God, and we don't reject evil. Friends, do you fall somewhere? Do you fall somewhere on that list we just walked through? Friends, we all do somewhere. We all do. Even if it's lacking the fear of God in certain areas of our lives, we all need one another. And we need God to expose us with His holiness and rescue us with His love. 
So friends, are you seeking satisfaction in your sin or in God? If you don't know how all-encompassing our sin is, then you will not know the breadth of God's love. Get to know your sin, and you will get to know his love. This is David's thought pattern. Because when he turns, in verse 5, he turns to abundant praise to God. So while we often indulge in sin, friends, we do. Whether in thoughts or the fantasies of our hearts and minds, while we often indulge in sin, David says, indulge in God. Which brings us to our second point, the fullness of God. Verses 5 through 12 read this way. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the, water, the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the wicked or the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. After David walks through the progression of how corruption works in our hearts. We see how we are to fight sin. He states three times in this passage the word in Hebrew, which is hesed. It's a word that means steadfast love, or God's loving kindness. What we see is that God's covenantal love by which he loves all his people, is the refuge that we can run to. The shelter we can trust in and the fortress of defense that we need at all times. David wants to get our eyes up. Get them up. And in light of our sin, behold his goodness. In verses 5 through 6, David uses several images to help us see how glorious God is. So here we see God's eternal existence, his endless attributes, his marvelous providence, his awesome justice. Here is the whole world to explore, friends. Here is a whole world to explore. God's goodness. God's steadfast love, as David says, extends to the heavens. His faithfulness to the clouds. His love, friends, is unsearchable, unfathomable, profoundly high, intensely commanding, inconceivably magnificent. David says your righteousness is like the mountains of God. God's righteousness is impenetrable, drastically unchangeable, eternally immovable, unconquerable. God's judgments are like the great deep. You cannot plumb the depths of God's judgment. His thoughts are inexhaustible. His purposes are untraceable. His resolve is bottomless. Nothing can hold back his hand and nothing can force his hand. All creation answers to him, was created through him, and is sustained by him. He is perfectly existent, possesses faultless knowledge, 
holds flawless wisdom, owns endless power, exists in spotless holiness, enacts seamless justice, is trinity, and exists in perfect unity. From his throne flows mercy and truth. Jonah spoke in the belly of that fish. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Or like the words of Thomas Watson. He says, who could hang the earth on nothing but God? Who could provide such rich furniture for the heavens, the glorious constellations, the firmament bespangled with such glittering lights? We see God's glory blazing in the sun, twinkling in the stars. Who could give the earth its clothing, cover it with grass and corn, adorn it with flowers, enrich it with gold? Only God. Who but God could make the sweet music in the heavens, cause the angels to join in concert and sound forth the praises of their maker? Job 38.7 says, The morning stars sang together, and all the sons of of God shouted for joy. If a man should go into a far country and see stately edifices there, he would never imagine that these built themselves, but that some greater power had built them. To imagine that the work of creation was not framed by God is as if we should conceive a curious landscape to be drawn by a pencil without a hand. God created all things. He created them in the beginning. And they exist by His allowance. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders and many the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Brothers and sisters, all glory will be returned to him. For all our effort to meditate on God and behold his great power and goodness, we will always fall short. We will never be able to find words to express all God's love to his people. We all desire to say, we should all desire to say, how excellent is he? Rather than I knew that already. Our fickleness makes a drooping contrast to this towering covenant love and faithfulness of God. Our standards, human standards, where all is based on comparison, are a swamp, a marsh, next to the demanding, exhilarating mountains of God's righteousness. Our assessments are shallow in comparison with His judgments. Beloved, Jesus came down from heaven as an illustration of God's steadfast love for us. He was found in human form and humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To further illustrate this steadfast love, his, his life exemplified faithfulness 
such faithfulness that he withstood temptation by the evil one himself, showing that he was the true and better Adam. Because of his faithful obedience to the Lord, his righteousness exceeded that of the Pharisees and was perfectly pleasing to the Father. After dying, he was raised from the dead on the third day to declare that he is the Son of God and solidify his words that he spoke in life. He is the sin-conquering, death-defeating Savior. No man can touch his love. No man can touch his faithfulness. No man can touch his righteousness, for he is the righteous man, Jesus Christ. And he will faithfully judge all of us. Gazing at God's goodness, His towering goodness, His steadfast love and righteousness should cause a Christian to desire to press. Press deeper. Tighten the screw. Know Him more. Not only should we declare God's goodness, but we should also delight in His love. Verses 5 through 7 is about what happens when we discover, when we see, and pronounce God's love. But now, now we see what God's love does when it's in action towards us. Verse 7 through 9 reads this way How precious! Is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Steadfast love should be understood in verse 5 as too great to grasp. We cannot grasp it. And in verse 7, as too good to let go. David first shows the value of God's steadfast love. The worth of God's love for his people. David asserts that God's love is precious. And the rest of verses 7 through 9 is asking the question, why? Why is God's love so precious? What is so precious about his love? David says, The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Coupled with the statement at the beginning of verse 9, David says, For with you is the fountain of life. In God's steadfast love, he provides safety and salvation for his people. The imagery here is like a mother hen who has her wings spread over her young and won't allow any harm to come to them. This is a picture of when we follow God's ways and live under His protection. This is a willful submission to God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you would actually self-identify as that, I'm not a Christian. God can save you from your sin and from his judgment. One day, friends, every knee will bow in heaven and or, or on earth. And that means yours will too. So friends, I would ask you, I would plead with you, repent of your sins. Turn away from your sins while you still can. You are not promised another second. Friends, dear Christian, we still need to be saved from the sin that we experience every single day. Our old friend Martin Luther said this striking word All the saints are sinners and remain sinners. But they are holy because God in His grace 
neither sees nor counts these sins, but forgets, forgives, and covers them. There is thus no distinction between saints and non-saints. They are sinners alike and all sin daily. Only the sins of the holy are not counted but covered, and the sins of the unholy are not covered but counted. In Genesis 3, friends, we see that every one of us, what every one of us do when we're living in sin. God comes to walk in the garden, in the coolness of the day. And Adam and Eve hid themselves because of their shame, because of their guilt. They knew their sin before a holy God. And they did not want his gaze. Friends, in our sin, in our sin we run and hide in our, in our exposed nakedness. But in God's steadfast love, he exposes our shame and covers us in his righteousness. He takes our shame and he takes our guilt and he died for it. Friends, we could have been in that crowd that day. That day, standing before Pontius Pilate, yelling with the crowd, crucify him. Crucify him. But if we repent and believe in him, God doesn't hold that against us. My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord would take frail flesh and die? Here might I stay and sing no story so divine. Never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus, if Jesus died for your sins, then he can harness your joy. This is not a stationary love, but a pursuing love, an exerting love. There's no staleness to his love. God's love isn't only meant to give safety and salvation, but it's also meant to give satisfaction. Verse 8 reads, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. This idea of being satisfied by God is all through the Psalms. You can look at Psalm 37, 4. Psalm 42, 1 through 2. Psalm 63, 1. Psalm 43, 4. Psalm 16, verse 11. They all communicate this same emphasis. This delight in God communicates this all-encompassing satisfaction that will not be appeased by anything in the world because your eye has caught a glimpse. Your eye has caught a glimpse of God Almighty. And you will not be pleased by anything lesser. It's a joy-fueled, God-bentness. John Piper says it this way, the fuel of worship is a true vision of the greatness of God. The fire that makes the fuel burn white hot is the quickening of the Holy Spirit. The furnace made alive and warm by the flame of truth is our renewed spirit. And the resulting heat of our affections is powerful worship, pushing its way out into confessions, longings, acclamations, tears, songs, shouts, bowed heads, lifted hands, and obedient lives. 
Delighting in God is when God becomes the hunt of our heart. Is God the hunt of your heart? This is only possible when God gives us a glimpse of himself. And we see him for who he actually is. This is why David puts verses 5 through 6 before verses 7 through 9. Because he's saying, look at him. Look at him. Isn't he glorious? David even adds to this idea in verse 9 when he says, In your light do we see light. Charles Wesley tried to capture this idea when he said, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. When God turns the lights on in our heart and we see him, we see him. Delighting in God is when our hearts are filled with a multitude of thoughts for him. When, our, when his glory becomes the apple of our eye, when his majesty becomes the pleasure of our souls. When we are filled with utter satisfaction in him. Friends, a Christian is someone who, who has transgression speak to his heart, like we read in verse 1. And yet he rejects it. Why? Because he has seen the Lord of glory. He has seen him. Being a Christian doesn't mean that transgression becomes absent in your heart. But that you reject it. You turn from it. You repent of it. It's being and at the same time becoming the man or woman you already are. In Christ, Christians still have sin in their hearts, but they fear God and they love Him. When we stand and sing hymns on Sunday morning, sometimes, friends, we didn't sleep well on Saturday night and had to wake up early on Sunday morning to get to church. We had to throw everything in a bag, get the kids ready, feed the dog, throw everything in the van, race to the church, and feel like you just skid into the spot. You know, barely get there. And the hymns we sing are not always sweet. Sometimes it's difficult to sing songs on Sunday mornings when we've had a stressful morning already. Or it's been a, a week where you've been hurt. Friends, one day we will sing to the Lord forever and it will never be out of monotonous drudgery but an endless delight. In heaven, we will only ever worship God because we want to. Now that's a glorious thought, isn't it? Finding such pleasure in God that worshiping Him is the overflow of our hearts. Beloved, let's pray that our hearts would so overflow with love for God that serving one another is simply an expression of our love for Him. We must have a God-centered joy, a Godness to our joy. And David in the last section gives us what should be the plea of our hearts. He says, oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Friends, we ought to all pray this. Lord, keep my heart close to you. 
God's grace sustains us. And he must continue his love toward us in order to stay close to him. Slipping into sin is easy for any of us. It's easy for any of us. And here in verse 11 through 12, he's recalling the idea he spoke of earlier in verses 1 through 4. He wouldn't have asked the Lord to keep him from arrogance if he didn't have to fight it. It's frightening. It's a frightening vision to see. Because this speaks of judgment. How God will judge all those who are wicked and continue in their wickedness. But he also prays that God would continue his steadfast love and righteousness to those who are upright in heart. Well, we already discovered earlier that we're not. And David says elsewhere in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So David is appealing to another righteousness. Where is the righteous man? John Snyder said the following. You may think that God is not truly happy to have you in his family. You may think, well, he will delight in me when I'm, in, when I'm sinless and, and com, you know, complete in the eternity, in the future. But not now. That sounds reasonable. But it's a lie founded on works-based righteousness. It is believing the deception that God loves me because I'm resolving to do better tomorrow than I did yesterday. The view of God's love feeds your pride and steals the glory, or this view of God's love feeds our pride and steals the glory due to God in our rescue. Have you considered that God draws all his reasons for loving you from within himself? You can search the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find any passage in which God describes what it was about you that made him love you. God's reason for loving you, who once was his enemy, is not found in you, but in himself. Once Jesus finished the great work of redemption, the true believer is placed in the Son, united to him in his vitality as his or her mediator, and clothed with the Son's righteousness. All that God demands for you is to be the object, to be the object of his infinite delight has been provided by Christ. It doesn't matter what my children do all day long. It doesn't matter. I may have to discipline them what I feel like is a hundred times. Because they're disobeying me. But when they go to bed, and I walk past their room, and I open their door, and I look inside, my heart overflows with love for my child, for my children. And my heart delights in them. And it's not because of anything they've done. The reason for my love for them is not found in them, but in my heart. As John Piper puts it, God is perfectly pleased by what is perfectly pleasing. Brothers and sisters, you and I can delight in God this morning because he delights in you. Let's pray. Almighty Father, you are so good in your glory and in your might and your goodness and your love and your faithfulness and your righteousness. Lord God, we fall so utterly short. 
we scrape the bottom of the barrel and Lord, our hearts, they desire satisfaction. You made us for that. Oh Lord, help our hearts to look to you. Help our minds to be set upon you. Help our affections to be drawn towards you. And Lord, do your saving work in us. Cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Draw us to yourself and make us born again. In Jesus' name, amen.